Welcome to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. Ross Brannan is a financial advisor who knows it's not just about your teeth. He helps dental practice owners protect and maximize today's cash flow to plan for tomorrow's cash needs. Find him at rossbrannan.com. On the show, he brings together experts to help dental professionals looking to make smart money decisions to grow their income, turn their retirement goals into reality, and improve their lives. And now, here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Stan Kinder. Stan Kinder owns everything DSO. He is a DSO insider and consultant for dental practice owners who want to have maximum impact and profitability in their field. Stan helps dental practices, both well-established and new, grow their income and navigate a playing field full of huge DSOs and has worked out tons of great deals between dentists and DSOs that leave everyone satisfied. Stan Kinder, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Russ. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right, so let's jump right in. For those who don't know, what is a DSO? Uh, a dental service organization. Essentially, these are predominantly private equity funded entities that consolidate individual dental practices under the umbrella of a larger organization with a view towards bringing economies of scale, other resources to the table to help their constituent practices accelerate their growth and profitability. Okay, so they're buying up dental practices everywhere, correct? Absolutely. Why are they doing that? The one word, I think the answer is yield. Private equity for many years has generally had an interest in consolidating what are typically described as sort of cottage industries uh, made up of large numbers of uh, small businesses aggregating them together with a view towards improving profitability. Okay. Now, as we talk about them chasing yield, would it be, would it be fair to say that if we weren't in a low interest to zero interest rate environment that we've been in for the past 10, 12 years, that they wouldn't be going after uh, dental practices? Or um, does, do you think that matters? I think that they would probably still be going after, but it makes their ultimate economics more favorable. Private equity typically uses their equity dollars, leverages that with debt, which generates a higher rate of return on their equity. So um, given that debt is very low cost to almost no cost in today's world, they're able to generate uh, generally more powerful economic leverage, which gives them a better yield in the final analysis. Okay, so some have called you the DSO Whisperer. How did you become the DSO Whisperer? Uh, well, I embrace that this, that description uh, enthusiastically. It's largely as a result of my having spent almost 15 years with three different DSOs, and uh, generally in senior management roles, uh, typically being primarily responsible for mergers and acquisition activity in one instance uh, in a senior operating role. So I have spent the bulk of my time basically in conversation with dentists interested in exploring a relationship with, uh, with DSOs. Okay, so I have one accountant in the dental space who tells me in his opinion, 
five years from now, 75% of all dental practices will be DSOs. Do you agree with that? Is that an accurate statement? How long will this trend go? Yeah, there's been a lot of speculation in the trade press that says over the course of the next three to five years, that the expectation is that that number will grow to 60 to 65% of all dental practices. And right now, today, it's roughly 20 to 22% and is uh, growing at an ever accelerating uh, pace, largely as a consequence of a lot of small to mid-sized group practice owners have seen the highly favorable economics that come with an eventual affiliation or sale with a with a DSO and or a directly with a private equity firm. Wow, that's interesting. So you don't see this trend slowing anytime soon? No, not at all. Um, I can tell you the last company that I was associated with was Dental Care Alliance. Uh, they're considered one of what's uh, frequently described as an enterprise DSO. So that descriptor tends to refer to the largest and to some degree, the longest standing DSOs in the market. And uh, Dental Care Alliance had a little north of 300 practices and was approaching a billion dollars in patient revenues under management. Wow. So uh, when you think of, you know, 300 plus practices as a percentage of the total practices out there, that it's kind of 0.0001% or less. And so the runway for additional growth is almost unlimited. So could it ever come to a point where a dental school graduate could not start their own practice. I don't see how how they could prevent you from that. But would the market ever be a place where it's only employee dentists versus business owners? Well, I think that the uh, there will always be room for private practices. In my judgment, I just think the challenge of a both establishing and b operating on a sustained basis over an extended period of time is going to become increasingly difficult for a number of reasons. One, in 2019, the the American Dental Education Association said the average dental school graduate came out of dental school with a little over $284,000 in educational debt. So huge debt burden. So those folks have a tendency to be more interested in a job where they can Uh, service their debt, earn a living income, and uh, grow and develop as a a practitioner, as opposed to taking on the additional debt necessary to either acquire or start their own practice. Another factor in the mix is currently a little over 50% of graduating dental school classes are female. And statistically, female dentists have a higher level of interest in working part-time not always the case, and there are certainly many successful female dentists, but on average, the probability is that they're less likely to become practice owners than their male counterparts. Makes sense. Um, okay, so speaking of kind of what you were saying there, you're, one, of the, one of the things on your website, the phrase adapt or die shows up a lot. 
Sure. And so from your perspective, what does this mean for, di- for dentists? Like, what do they have to adapt to and what, what, what are the stakes? Well, I think independent of where any individual dentist is today in terms of how they think about a DSO or a potential relationship with a DSO, DSOs are having an ever-growing impact on the profession. And from my perspective, it's important that they they both, A, under, understand the particular challenges of remaining independent, and two, understand sort of what are the economics and the drivers that potentially make a DSO make sense, whether as an employed associate dentist or potentially as an owner of a practice liquidating their their own equity interest and affiliating with a DSO. Oh, wow. So have you seen a practice fail to adapt? And if so, what mistakes did they make? Certainly, I think, you know, every dentist in practice has heard a story of a colleague or a peer who has struggled in one way, shape or form. I won't necessarily attribute that directly to the growth of DSOs, but DSOs bring an incredible amount of resource to the table. Generally, uh, they've got access to capital. They've got highly trained and professional staff to deal with all of the non-clinical things that an individual practice owner and him or herself has to deal with. So that, you know, whether it's negotiating with a supplier, negotiating with a PPL, how to structure uh, employment arrangements for staff or associate dentist, there's almost an, an infinite number of things that they can help them do uh, cheaper and more efficiently. And so as the solo practitioner confronts those challenges and increasingly uh, has to deal with that burden, their colleagues in the, in the DSO universe are going to be moving at a, uh, a faster pace, in my judgment, over time. So when we talk about DSOs, we, need, we should talk about valuations. Sure. So... Uh, there's a lot of buzzwords thrown around here. You hear the word top line revenue, you hear the word EBITDA. And it, it's so funny, EBITDA earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, amortization is uh, it's an accounting term, but five people can come up with five different EBITDAs, which I find quite fascinating. So talk a little bit about the, the, the metrics, talk a little bit about you know, what is taken into account in valuing a practice, for example, one thing I've heard, if you're really good with systems and you have good systems in place, that can drastically affect your valuation in a positive manner. Talk about that for a minute. Sure. First, let me speak to kind of what I would call the macro differences between traditional valuation approaches and how and how DSOs approach valuation. Historically, practices uh, that have been sold from one dentist to another dentist have transacted for, on average, between 60 to 80% of their gross revenue. And the primary reason for this is that historically has been the limit to what a bank would lend for uh, to the dentist who's buying a practice. And almost 100% of practice purchases historically were bank financed. And so valuations have tended to operate inside of those parameters. 
not 100% of the time and not absolutely, but for the vast majority, um, that would be the case. And DSOs, on the other hand, value the practice based on the EBITDA term that you used, which is an accounting measure of the free cash flow that a practice generates. And where DSOs essentially contribute to the private equity firms making their money is the DSOs acquire their practices essentially at what I would describe as a wholesale price. And eventually when they exit the DSO, they do it at a retail price. So a a practice as a standalone entity has a value of X today. The moment it becomes part of a DSO and a large integrated group, that value goes to X plus, 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 plus. So, so are you saying, are you saying that I sell my practice? We were talking before we went on air about a practice that's going to sell for $11 million. So this practice for this, this dentist might sell his practice for $11 million. I think to most people, they would consider that a very large number and a very good valuation, all things considered. You're telling me that when the DSO buys that for $11 million, they actually feel like they're buying that at wholesale because they can kind of uh, fix and flip, if you will, to use the house term, fix and flip, create the efficiencies and then sell it or sell a package of these practices to somebody else, whether it's a bigger DSO or, or private equity group at a higher price retail wise. That's, that's exactly correct. Private equity basically is nothing more than the aggregation of money that gets invested with a view towards generating a favorable economic return. The investors in private equity funds are typically pension funds, endowments, high net worth uh, uh, individuals. So when a private equity fund invests in a particular company, they usually have a target holding period of somewhere between five and seven years before then they would look to do what's called a recapitalization, which is essentially a big word that means sell. And most commonly they're selling to a larger private equity fund who has the capital to continue to fund their their continued growth over time. So the larger PE firms let the smaller PE firms go out and do the dirty work, the leg work, and they they just come and buy them up later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's a pretty, uh, pretty apt description. And, uh, you know, the DSOs are generally acquiring practices in today's world between somewhere between a four and a half to as high as maybe seven, sometimes even eight multiple, which means whatever the EBITDA is, they're paying four and a half to eight times that number. And right now when they exit, they're generally getting 11 and a half to 14 times. Okay, so four and a half to eight, it's a pretty large spread. Most people would prefer eight over four and a half. What's the difference in eight in a practice that gets eight versus a practice that gets four and a half? Most commonly it tends to be the scale of the EBITDA. So a practice that generates $400,000 in EBITDA is going to be at the lower end of that range. 
a practice that generates or a group that generates, say, a million and a half in EBITDA is going to be at the upper end of that range. So it's it's really a, a function of, uh, you know, the cost to the DSO and the private equity firm of consummating a transaction is pretty constant from the 400K EBITDA practice to the $1.5 million EBITDA practice. So there's a lot of efficiency gain for them in doing those larger deals. So I've talked to some dentists who say they hate corporate dentistry and they would never sell to a corporate dentistry uh, outfit a DSO. What's your response to that? I really think that that's a function misguided uh, conclusions. I mean, when DSOs first arrived on the scene, organized dentistry was very anti-DSO for a lot of reasons. And one of the biggest was the notion that if a corporation is involved, then you're going to have non-clinicians influencing the care that patients ultimately receive. And what I will tell you is almost every state in the country has a uh, restrictions on the corporate practice of dentistry. So all of the DSOs draw a very bright line between the administrative and business services that they provide and the clinical decision-making that occurs. The clinical decision-making generally resides with whomever the chief dentist is in the practice. And if a DSO was to sort of cross that boundary, they would very quickly be sanctioned by state boards. And so they're very, very careful about that separation. So let's talk a minute about who you typically work with. Your website says your target client is at least a million in revenue. And uh, not every dentist knows their EBITDA. So we'll use top line revenue as, as uh, as a discussion point here. Looking to grow, that's kind of the baseline for you, the minimum, a million in revenue looking to grow. Who is your typical client? Who should be saying, I need to talk to Stan Kinder? Sure. What I will tell you is, the practices that are most attractive to DSOs typically tend to be more than a single provider. And part of the reason for that is it mitigates the risk to the DSO. Most dentists will, will tell you, and I agree with this, is the number one way to take a practice backwards is to have provider turnover. And so if it's a multi-provider office, if for some reason one provider is sick or disabled for some period of time, or there's some turnover uh, with one of the clinicians, there are other clinicians that continue to keep the engine running. And so so that's a, that's attractive. So I tend to uh, work more predominantly with uh, dentists who have larger practices as a consequence of there being more than one, one uh, clinician. But that's not true in absolute terms. I also certainly have worked with any number of uh, solo providers as well. And is there a, is, do you really have to have a million dollars of top line revenue to really even go down the road of uh, selling? Um, you know, it depends. DSOs have different profiles in terms of the kind of practice that they're most interested in affiliating with. Uh, Heartland, which is the biggest DSO in the in the country for some time, uh, very, very well north of a, a billion dollars in top line revenue and more than a thousand practices affiliated, it has a very significant number of 
solo practitioners in their portfolio. So on the other hand, Dental Care Alliance, the company I was with, the vast majority of their affiliated practices are larger and multi-practitioner. It really depends a little bit. Now, when a dentist sells, actually, let me step back here and ask this question. The majority of DSOs are buying general dentists and orthodontists, correct? Yeah, more consistently, although there have been a growth fairly significantly over the course of the last couple of years, solo specialty focused DSOs. So like the perios or the endos, those people? exactly. Exactly. And what I would tell you is most of the larger DSOs will look at specialty practices in their mix particularly in markets where they've got a reasonable, reasonably high density of affiliated uh, uh, general practices because it sort of lets them create a little bit of a, uh, a hub and spoke kind of a relationship between the general practices and the specialty practices. Okay. So now if I sell my practice to a DSO, they're not necessarily taking down Ross Brandon, uh, dentistry on the side and putting up Heartland, are they? Many times you won't even, the patient many times doesn't even know it's there's been a change, correct? Uh, ab- absolutely. Uh, um, the most common type of DSO is what they call acquisition driven DSOs, and they acquire existing practices and largely operate those practices with precisely the same identity they've had historically in terms of how they face the patient public. And nobody would ever even be aware that they're affiliated with a, with a DSO. There are a handful of what's called branded DSOs, probably the most notable being Aspen, which is uh, um, the second largest DSO in the country. And all of the Aspen affiliated practices are, in fact, Aspen yeah, now Aspen's a little bit different model, isn't it? Because they let their dentists kind of, it's almost like a franchise model, isn't it? What Aspen does? Yeah, a, a, li- a little bit. Um, what, how I would describe it is it's almost a retail model. Aspen does very heavy direct-to-consumer marketing when they open a practice and look to drive patient traffic into the office. And it's a little bit like the Gap or you know, any other retail store. They go and look for locations that they believe will be successful. They open a store and then sort of use their operating model, uh, which has been proven in many, many uh, locations to drive that particular practice. I talked to to the uh, chief real estate guy from Aspen some years ago, and he said, you know, basically, we look for a relatively new strip shopping center that has a Walmart, a Panera Bread, and a Verizon store. And if those three things all coexist, we know we've got a winning location. Wow. Now, don't they sometimes sell their practices to the dentist, but it's like a, like a franchise model? Yeah, absolutely. Um, essentially, the, the dentist agrees to use the Aspen management services, the dentist owns the, owns the practice and then contracts with Aspen to provide all of the back office support. And the dentist agrees to sort of operate in a way that's consistent with the Aspen umbrella. And very often their dentists in their new locations 
our senior associates from an existing location who have expressed expressed an interest in becoming owners, and so they they will move them into a uh, a new location and uh, set them up. So, how does everything DSO? How do you help clients? How do you help them navigate this world of DSO? Sure. Well, I've got relationships. Uh, in my time in the industry with a significant number of DSOs. And I am what is commonly referred to as a buy-side broker as opposed to a sell-side broker. Sell-side brokers essentially charge the seller a commission for whatever assistance or support they provide through the process. A buy-side broker is compensated by the buyer if there's a closing transaction. So there's let's, no let, 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 let's, let's stop right there because I've had some interactions with people on this. I've seen, because everyone assumes like a real estate broker, the seller pays the commission. So it's called five, 6%, whatever. You sell a million dollar house, it's five or 6% paid by the seller. I've seen broke DSO brokers have the seller pay the commission. But what, but what you're saying here is that the DSO actually typically pays the commission. So if you're a seller paying the commission, there's something wrong in that scenario. Is that right? Not necessarily wrong, but certainly at a very significant cost to the seller. Sell-side brokers are typically, typically charging anywhere from 7 8 9%. So on a multi-million dollar transaction. On a $10 million a, transaction, that's three quarters of a million dollars. Yeah, that can be a substantial amount of money. Uh, now, do you do some brokers, if, they're buy, if their sellers are not really hip to the game, do they double dip and get it from both sides? You know, I can't say that I've witnessed that firsthand, but I would not be at all surprised. So it's in the dentist best interest to work with a buy-side broker? Certainly in their economic interest. Now, what I will tell you is the reservation that's most commonly expressed is, well, are you going to be working for me or are you going to be working for the buyer? You know, how do I know you're going to get me the best deal possible? And what I will tell you is fundamentally, the almost 100% of the letters of intent are what they call non-binding in absolute terms which means that the seller has the ability to walk away from the transaction anytime up until the closing. So if they're not happy with the deal, they can walk away. And what I tell people fundamentally is, if I don't bring you a deal that makes you happy, there's no deal. And by the same token, if I'm not uh, bringing a deal to the buyer that makes them happy, there's no deal. So I'm, I'm sort of obligated in order to be successful in my own interest to keep both parties happy. The other thing I will tell you is private equity has used buy-side brokers uh, for years and years and years in other businesses. And one of the primary reasons is that commission cost is what's called below the line, which means it's capitalizable to them and doesn't affect their EBITDA or P&L on a current basis. So it's it's kind of zero net cost to them in the near term. And because it's deductible, they're able to recapture that cost. And so it doesn't affect 
the ultimate enterprise value that they're prepared to offer a dentist in a given situation. Okay. And so we kind of got off topic there. So like, how do you help the clients besides representing them? You're using your leveraging your contacts for having multiple decades in the industry. What do you do for your clients? It begins with a, a conversation where I basically help them to articulate what their specific goals and objectives are. What is it that you really most want to achieve? Then I'll, I'll do a detailed valuation analysis of the practice to help them understand sort of what's the range of possibilities here in terms of eventual outcomes and to see whether or not that sort of fits inside that that uh, articulated goal, goal and objective. And I have also in some instances where a practice perhaps wasn't at the level of profitability that it should or could be, sort of help them to understand where the opportunities were for them to uh, remedy that over time. Now, is it a tough sell for clients to realize they need you? I would say that dentists are increasingly, because they're generally not experienced at selling a practice, whether it's to another dentist or to a DSO. And so they sort of come to the table with a little bit of a, uh, a knowledge gap, if you will. I, one of the things I have told people, part of what has driven me to pursue the buy-side brokerage proposition is that mm-hmm. Part of my goal is to help address what I call information asymmetry. Um, Generally, when a dentist is negotiating with a DSO, the people on the other side of the table are super highly sophisticated. You know, they buy and sell businesses all day, every day. And, you know, the dentist comes to the table and while they may be reasonably good business people and very capable clinicians, they're not particularly adept at buying and selling a business. And so uh, if I can help them gain the knowledge to become more adept, I see that as a good thing. Do you find some of them think they're more sophisticated than they are? Without question. And increasingly over time, you know, people have heard kind of these big numbers in terms of multiple and so they, they come to the initial conversation, not uncommonly with fairly unreasonable expectations as to what their practice might be worth. And so, you know, part of the exercise is helping them understand, look, here's what's reasonable given the marketplace today. So if a client wants to settle a DSO, what's a critical thing for them to keep in mind as they enter negotiations and want to get the best deal? I think a couple of things is like, you know, practice is an asset like any other asset. And so, you know, the better the condition of the asset, the more you're going to be able to negotiate for better pricing ultimately. And so that that addresses everything from the quality of the infrastructure, the facility, the equipment whether or not it's a practice that's growing or whether it's flatlining or declining, how well the uh, records are organized, you know, the better the organization, the more appealing it is to the DSO, because it means that they don't have to 
create that organization themselves. It's already pre-exists to some degree. So you spoke about this a minute ago, but like what financial savvy do you wish you saw out of more dentists? I think, you know, the average dentist basically thinks of their practice as their profession and a job. And it certainly is those things, but it's also a business. And so I wish the dentists could think about their practices more in the context of a business, just like if they owned a retail business or a distribution business or any, any kind of business. And so that they, they had the ability to sort of step back and look at the business and focus on the strengths and weaknesses and how to increase uh, the profitability as opposed to kind of just, this is where I do the dentistry that I do and spend 100% of their time focused on being clinicians and 0% of the time on being business owners, if that makes sense. Well, that's kind of what I've seen. I've seen you've got the lower revenue dental practices are, are dentists who basically own a job and the higher revenue practices are the owner is a business owner. He just happens to be a dentist. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the dentist that I have known over uh, many, many years of working with dentists, and I've owned practices indirectly in partnership with dentists in the past. I've consulted uh, with a significant number of practices and obviously I've been involved in the DSO world for some period of time. The dentists who really reach outside of themselves and look to get expert help tend to operate at a much higher level than those who don't. Right. All right. So let's change gears here. As we wrap things up, I always ask a handful of questions to, to everyone on the guest, every guest I have. What's the best piece of advice, financial or non-financial, that you've ever received? I would say just understand that you're responsible for everything that happens in your life, good or bad that you know you can blame other people for the negative outcomes of the bad things that happen but that's not going to change anything and other people aren't going to get you to a better place only you can get you to to a better place that's great wisdom right there what are you reading or what's your favorite book i am a huge fan of anything and everything written by a guy named dan kennedy Oh, yes. He's a he's a marketing guru. And frankly, in my mind, a genius. And I read everything the guy writes. I subscribe to their newsletter, um, have been for many years, even though it's fairly expensive as newsletters go. But it's uh, it's worth every penny. Uh, the guy is really brilliant. And if a dentist is really interested in sort of understanding marketing at a higher level, they would do well to read Dan Kennedy. And what do you wish or, or what advice would you give a brand new dental school graduate? You know, I think to strike an appropriate balance between the development of their clinical skills as well as their business knowledge, you see all too often the focus is almost exclusively on the clinical skills. And, I, you know, I've known a lot of guys that have basically attended hundreds of hours of clinical CE and ultimately are failing 
in their practices. And I say to dentists all the time, you know, I've known very average dentists who had exceptional levels of success because they knew how to communicate with people and focused on some of the non-clinical things. And I've known people who were exceptional clinicians that I would go to, I would refer my mother, my uh, family to, but who couldn't succeed because they couldn't master the non-clinical things. It's funny how that works. It is funny how that works. So, well, Stan Kinder, it has been fascinating uh, speaking with you today and enlightening our listeners on the world of DSOs. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? My cell phone is 703-298-1690. My website is www.everythingdso.com. And my email address is stan at everythingdso.com. And an offer that I would like to make to all your listeners, Ross, is I have written a book on DSOs that's fairly comprehensive. And I'd be more than happy to provide a free PDF copy to any of your listeners that would be interested. And all they need to do is reach out to me in any of those uh, three, uh, three methods, and I'll be happy to get it in their hands as quickly as I can. That's great. That's, I appreciate you doing that. So once again, Stan, thank you so much for your time today. It was absolutely uh, enlightening what you share with us. And you've been listening to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brand, and we'll see you next time. This has been another episode of Financial Flossing with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. If you liked what you heard, consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. For more on Ross Brannan, visit rossbrannan.com. Registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664 Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311, 850-562-9075. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0L10073. Arkansas Insurance License Number 16139032. 2021-1195-35. Expires 423. That last part can also say 2021 119535 expiration April 2023. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or North Florida Financial, and opinions stated are their own. Ross is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities LLC, PAS, OSJ 3664 Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida 32311, 8505629075. Securities and products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Arkansas Insurance License Number 16139032. 
California insurance license number 0L10073, 2021-123604, expiration 0723. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.